For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. Every now and then, I like to remind you guys that our guests may not agree with all of our positions. We may not agree with all of theirs. Our goal isn't only to have people who check every box that we check or vice versa. We really want to have good dialogue about how we approach drugs, and we don't need to agree on everything for a guest to provide that for our listeners. So our topic today is one that you probably have never thought much about unless you have been arrested. We're talking about the financial impact of an arrest, specifically a drug arrest, or as often happens once you've had a touch with the criminal justice system, a series of arrests. It's extremely difficult to get out of the criminal justice spin cycle once you have gotten in it one time. Our episode today is going to touch on one of the reasons why exiting the system is so hard. And this matters because there are lots of people who will say, you know, look, people deserve a second chance. I absolutely believe in second chances. You know, they've done their time in jail. They should be able to rebuild their lives. Um, and I think most of us have an idea that once you come out of jail, you have a clean slate. You can just start fresh. Um, but is that really true? Because if we're making it really difficult to actually rebuild your life, then that harms all of society. And the more people we have who are unable to thrive, then the worse off we all are. So we do episodes on topics like today's because I think the more we understand the breadth of impact that a drug arrest has on a person's life, the more we gain a fuller picture of just how harmful arresting people for a drug charge really is. And that's what's going to motivate more people not just to change their minds, but to get involved in spreading the invitation to other people to change their minds. So if you don't think the world will be much different if we end the drug war, you know, it's just six of one, half a dozen of the other, doesn't really matter which way we go, then you're never going to voice your support for ending it. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a dramatically different world. So by showing the level of harm, we want you to catch a vision for how much better our world would be without all of these various harms. And I guarantee you, if fees and fines weren't a big deal, our guest today would not be dedicating part of a very distinguished career to addressing them. So Lisa Foster is joining us today from the Fees and Fines, um, sorry, Fines and Fees Justice Center. Lisa is a retired judge and the former director of the Office for Access to Justice at the United States Department of Justice. As a California Superior Court judge in San Diego, where she served for 10 years, Lisa presided over criminal, family, and civil cases and served as the presiding judge of the court's appellate division. And along with a colleague, Lisa wrote a 10-page um, letter, kind of a dear colleague letter, to every chief justice and state court administrator addressing the legal framework that governs the enforcement of fines and fees and warning that many collection practices may violate the federal constitution and or its statutes. Lisa received a BA in American Studies from Stanford University and a JD magna cum laude from Harvard Law School. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christine. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me, and thank you for what you do. This is a great podcast. Uh, Lisa, you've had a really distinguished career. I actually only read about a fourth of your bio. Um, and today you work specifically on the issue of fees and fines. Most people think of this as kind of like a side issue at best. Why are you traveling all over the country now working on this particular issue? Well, let me tell you that by telling you a story. 
so, and it's a story that illustrates exactly what you said in your introduction about how a small contact with the criminal justice system can lead to uh, a spiraling entrapment in the system. And the story I'm going to tell you is about a woman named um, Taja Collier. She lives in Arizona. She was a sophomore, so she's 19, at Central Arizona College. She was studying to be a social worker, and she got pulled over um, as a pa- in the, the car she was driving was pulled over. She was a passenger um, because the car made an, an improper turn. The police officer took everybody out of the car, searched ever- them, and in her purse was a small amount of marijuana. In fact, a quantity so small that they never even bothered to weigh it. She um, gets a ticket. And a couple of months later, she gets a letter from the Maricopa County, that's Phoenix, um, state attorney's office, saying that they are going to charge her with a felony. Arizona is one of the, I think it's the last state in the country where simple possession of small quantities of marijuana can be charged as a felony. They're going to charge her with a felony unless she agrees to participate in a diversion program. So she is panicked and she agrees to participate in the program, she has to drop out of school and move because the program requires her to pay, first of all, a $150 orientation fee. Um, And to make that, she had to sell blood plasma. It's $15 every time they test her and they test once a week. That's why she had to move so she could be close enough to the test site because if you're not there within an hour with your $15 in hand, They consider that a refusal to test, and then they kick you out of the program. Um, She had to pay monthly fees for being in the program. And um, she, at one point, couldn't afford to pay for the test. They kicked her out of the program, charged her with a felony. She had to go back to court. Then they put her back in the program. She had to pay the the, the orientation fee all over again. Um, and she now has to pay $670 to finish the program. Wow. That's for having a small amount of marijuana in her purse when she was a passenger in a car. She she did, yes, that small amount of marijuana was a violation of law. But that is a huge entanglement with the system for really a very incidental brush with the law. So... That is not an isolated story. And the reason that I got involved in this issue was because stories like that are everywhere. I trace my involvement back to Ferguson, Missouri, which, as many people remember, is a suburb of St. Louis where in 2014, a young black man named Michael Brown was shot by a police officer. The community exploded. There were days of protests. And then the Justice Department investigated the Ferguson Police Department. I was at the Justice Department then, and what the department discovered was a system of policing for profit. The city of Ferguson was raising about a quarter of its budget from fines and fees. And when they needed more money, the city manager would tell the police chief, quote, up the revenue pipeline. And then the police would go out and ticket people and they had very stiff tickets. They charged $531 if the 
your grass was too high on your front lawn. They charged $300 for jaywalking. They would ticket you if you had a barbecue on your front lawn because you were only supposed to do that in your backyard. Um, they'd ticket you for rolling through a stop sign, for going too fast, for going too slow. The officers literally had contests about how many tickets they could write in a single traffic stop. Um, they did their ticketing primarily in the black community. And if you couldn't afford to pay, which was the case for a whole lot of people, you went to jail. And when that report came out, I, um, I was furious. And I was furious because I was a judge. I, I believe in the justice system. I believe that the justice system is, in, is keeping us all safe. It's enforcing rights and responsibilities. It's supposed to be a force for good in the community. And instead, what I learned is that it was an institution of oppression in a lot of communities in this country. And over time learned, as I said, that this problem is everywhere. It's not just in Missouri. It's not just in Arizona. It's in every court, in every state, and every community. Wow. I think for most people, that's mind-boggling to realize what's happening, what can happen, even that that can happen, um, and then that it is happening in communities and all the different ways that people can accrue fees and fines. I actually just had a conversation with somebody um, uh, last week who um, is in recovery now and was just mentioning that rebuilding their life from the financial um, just atomic bomb of criminal justice involvement because of their drug addiction um, took them years to do. And their estimate for how much money they owed to pay off all of the fines and fees, all of the um, uh, diversion program fees that they had been a part of that you have to pay, paying for, you know, their parole officer, paying for supervise, you know, supervision after their release. Their estimate on that was that they had paid $15,000 to the criminal justice system for, um, you know, a multi-year um, addiction uh, cycle and all of the different ways that they were still paying on that. That's just thinking through how, you know, okay, how, how would I do that? How would, how would I materialize thousands and thousands of dollars um, while I was also trying to get my life back on track, while potentially also I had a criminal record making, you know, employment really difficult to even earn anything, much less the amount of money to live on and pay all of these fees and fines back. Um, it, it sounds like kind of the same thing that you found, which is this is an incredibly um, harmful issue to people who are it's, it's predatory in some instances, and it's just makes life incredibly difficult to actually live uh, for other people. Is that so? Yeah, it is. Um, so we know because the Federal Reserve has studied this, that the average American, average American, could not come up with $400 in an emergency. 40% of Americans would e don't have the money or would have to borrow the money from a friend or family member to make, to cover a $400 emergency. So think about what that means for people who are in the justice system and particularly people who have drug-related issues. Because if they've got a drug problem, they're probably not working 
or they're not working at a um, at, at a good job to come up with that kind of with the kind of money you mentioned, which is not a typical fifteen thousand dollars. And um, we can talk a little more about why drugs in particular are expensive um, offenses to commit. But how do you even begin to pay that off? Um, we know in one of your neighbors, um, Alabama, um, there was a survey done of a thousand people who owed fines and fees. And of that thousand people, 38% admitted to committing a crime in order to pay back the money they owed. Wow. Often they were doing <laughs> That's that. That's so counterproductive. Of course. When the underlying, sometimes they were doing it when the underlying crime, crime, and I put that in quotes, the reason they owed money was a traffic ticket. And what they, but they're stuck in the system. And so either steal, sell drugs, or sell themselves in order to pay back the state for money they owe. That is completely counterproductive. Wow. That's, uh, oh man, this is. Can I, can I ask you a question? How is this situation not compared to or wouldn't be considered a debtor's prison? Well, so it's funny you ask that. So it is in some circumstances. Um, and, uh, and actually, um, uh, Mississippi, unfortunately, was ground zero um, until about two years ago mm -hmm. on debtor's prisons. So a lot of um, courts around the country were, in fact, jailing people um, simply because they could not afford to pay the fines and fees that they owed. And, and, and if you think about this for um, a second, it was incredibly counterproductive. What a lot of places would do is tell you that they'd put, if you couldn't pay right away, they would tell you that you would go to jail and you would, quote, sit out your fines and fees at um, the rate of 25 or maybe if you were lucky, $50 a day. So you owe, you owe the state money, and now we're going to put you in jail and give you credit for that money, the money you owe us, but it costs us money to keep you in jail. So... It, it, that's not, who does that help? Wow. It <laughs> doesn't help taxpayers. <laughs> but that was happening in many, many places. Now, it turns out it's unconstitutional. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court back in 1983 said that you cannot put somebody in jail simply because they cannot afford to pay a fine or a fee unless you can show that they, period. If you can show that they, they can afford to pay it and they're simply thumbing their nose at the court and not paying, you can put someone in jail. But the vast majority of people in the justice system are poor. We know that because mm -hmm. most people qualify for a public defender. And um, so you can't do what a lot of judges all over the country were doing. Now, that has stopped directly in most places. And I, in Mississippi, it took litigation. There were three very important cases in Mississippi, one in Corinth, one in Biloxi, one in Jackson, um, brought by advocates who, who said, these are debtors' prisons and you have to stop this. They all, every one of those jurisdictions settled their cases. And the Mississippi Supreme Court issued new court rules that were very explicit to judges, saying you cannot put someone in jail 
for unpaid fines and fees unless you show that they're able to pay. Now, here's the, the problem. That's the direct way that you get in jail. But here's the indirect way that you end up in jail and that we still have debtor's prisons. In a whole lot of places, at sentencing, the judge says, okay, you owe us $500 or $1,000 or whatever it is, and you say, I can't afford to pay. And then the judge says, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. How much have you got today? And you say, well, maybe I have $20 or whatever you have. And then what the judge will do is say, okay, you're going to come back next month and um, and pay another $50 or another $100 or pay it all. And that, that, that keeps happening because people can't pay it all back the next month. Um, and so the judge will just say, keep coming back. And over time, life happens, right? First off, in most places, there's no public transportation. People have to work. That kid may get sick. You miss one of those court appearances. And then a warrant goes out for your arrest because you didn't count, go to court. So then uh. you end up in jail. And is that technically because you can't afford to pay? Well, no, but as a practical matter, it is because if you could have paid up front, you had the resources to pay it all off at that time, you would have been done with the system and walked away. So you're being incarcerated for missing a court appearance. You had the court appearance because you couldn't afford to pay your fees and fines. And the court appearance exactly. was to get you back in court to pay your fees and fines. So it's just one small step removed from actually jailing you for not paying. But if you had and paid, exactly. then you wouldn't even be there. let me give you another example that's, um, that involves drugs. As, um, as you know, drug courts have uh, are everywhere now. And um, drug courts cost money. That's first drug court in Mississippi was in Lee County. It cost $75 just to apply to drug court. So you got picked up a conviction and you want to go to drug court instead of going, being sentenced. You have to pay $75 and it's non-refundable. So if they don't let you in, tough luck. They keep your give, give us the two set, the two sentence explanation of what drug court is in case people sure. don't know. Sure. Drug court in, in, is an alternative, usually, it, it's a form of diversion in most places. That is, you get picked up for possession of uh, marijuana or cocaine or something else. And instead of getting tried and, ha- or, and convicted and going to jail or paying fines and fees, you go into drug court, and drug court is a treatment program. And what happens is you agree to be there for some period of time. You have monthly court dates or every other month court dates, you go to um, counseling or rehab, um, whatever the drug court staff and you work out um, and they determine is appropriate for your case. You have random drug testing. And the purpose of it really, if you're successful and you finish drug court, you don't have a criminal conviction, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and presumably you get clean and sober, which is an even better thing. Right. So, um, there and they are um, in in rough. They all differ a little bit, but that's roughly what um, drug courts do. And they're designed to help people, and they've been um, helpful to the people who've been able to graduate. But when you introduce money into drug court, and almost everywhere there is money in drug court, that is, people are forced to pay um, to be in a drug court program. 
um, then you end up with problems. And so, as I said, to apply costs $75. You have to keep up with your fines and fees payments as long as you're in the program, at least in Lee County. Well, what does that mean? That means in addition to having to get to drug court and you have to make monthly payments towards what you owe, you have to pay for the random testing. So they tell you to test. Um, you have to get down there in an hour and you have to get down there with money in your hand in order to pay for the test. If you don't have the money, again, they'll construe that as a refusal to test or, an, or a positive test. And then you go to jail because that's the sanction in drug court often is a couple of days in jail um, to teach you the lesson that you need to participate fully in the program. Well, that's just not helpful if the underlying issue is you don't have money. And as I said, for a whole lot of people, um, uh, even $10 is hard to come by. And for people who are, you know, our our goal for people then would be that they are working. And uh, I think a lot of us just don't think about what would what would happen to us if we were incapacitated for even a couple of days, but much less a couple of weeks or a couple of months, as people often are when they are detained through incarceration, you lose your job. And if you've lost your job, you can't pay for your housing. Now you've lost your housing. Now you've, I mean, it, now we've created this just disastrous situation in an already tenuous situation for a lot of people in this situation. And now, but we still want them to pay back these fees and fines. We want them to get their life back. But our, the very thing we're using to try to, you know, incentivize them into that is destabilizing the very thing we, we want to try to help them build is what it seems like. Absolutely. And, and let me just say one word about um, drug convictions in particular. Yeah, we'd love to so, know kind of um, how that impacts. So, so let me just um, start with a little bit of a vocabulary lesson there. We talk about fines and fees. Let me just explain. There's a difference between them. So the, a fine is the is a monetary sanction for violating the law. And they go back centuries. We've had fines in the system for years. It's just we've decided there are some offenses that are um, that don't merit jail or incarceration, and so we, we fine people instead. What's happened over the last 30 years is we've lost the instead. Um, that is, we fine people and we put them in jail. And, uh. and with drugs, that's particularly true. Um, People who are convicted of drug offenses often face prison time and a substantial fine. And in over again, over the last 30 years, they face mandatory minimum fines. And what that means is the judge has no choice. The legislature has said this is the least amount of money that you can find this person. Um, and it's and they come up particularly in what are called drug trafficking cases. Now, I say called drug trafficking cases because most of us, when we think about drug traffickers, think of Chapo Guzman or um, somebody mm -hmm. who's you know, a really bad guy making millions of dollars trafficking drugs. That's not what drug trafficking is under the law. And Mississippi is a great example. Um, if you're Drug trafficking is defined by the quantity of drugs they find on you when you're arrested. And with respect to, for example, opioids, obviously we have a huge opioid addiction problem in the United States. As few as 11 Percocet 
can make you a drug trafficker. Wow. Now, if you're an addict, 11 Percocet is nothing, right? That's a disease use. But you get caught with that. In Mississippi, the mandatory minimum fine is $5,000. Whoa, are you kidding? Now, wait, because you, um, if you happen to get that charge in Florida, you just go over the border a little bit, it's $50,000. What? $50,000. Now, your light, a drug trafficking charge also carries typically prison time. Um, so you're now going to prison for at least a year, probably more. Um, there are lots of fines and there are lots of fees that accumulate in prison. So, um, but you're going to come out with a felony conviction owing either the state of Mississippi $5,000 or the state of Florida $50,000, which, oh, by the way, you know, interest accumulates. So it's starts to get even bigger and there are penalties if you don't pay on time how are you ever going to get back on your feet wow when that's hanging over your head i mean fifty thousand dollars might as well be fifty million dollars to most people i mean that's a life sentence for being an addict that's not the way we should run our system so what's driving this what is driving the increase over the last 30 years of fees and fines where is the money going well, so that's a really good question. Here's what happened. Um, really, two things. One is, um, as most people know, beginning in the 1980s, we started um, incarcerating more and more people. The prison population in the United States increased dramatically um, from ni- 1985 to 2010. Um, uh, literally by 500%. I mean, we've just quintupled the number of people in custody. The United States has more people in custody than any other country in the world um, by orders of magnitude. And um, that system, when you do that, it costs money, right? Not only do you need to build more prisons and hire more prison guards, you also need more courts and more probation officers and more judges and more clerks. That all costs money. And at the same time that those costs are increasing, two things happened. One, the no new taxes movement sweeps the country. So legislators in states are reluctant to raise taxes to pay for these costs. And the federal government pulled um, out of a huge or stopped a huge program that funded a lot of um, state and local um, courts and police. So you have kind of a double whammy. So legislators are trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to pay for this? And they landed on the idea of user fees um, that the people in the system should pay for it. Um, and that's what they started to do. They started increasing fees. And again, fee, fees are not, so we, I talked about what a fine is. A fee is just an added cost, an added sanction. Um, and it either pays for a service or, and I put service in quotes, or, or a cost of the system, like um, there are prosecution fees, there are um, bond fees. If you, have, um, if you post bail, there are jail fees in a lot of places. They charge you for your time in jail. There are fees for 
making phone calls. There's fees for probation supervision. There's fees um, that go to court security. There are fees that go to pay for DNA testing. There are fees that in some places pay the judge's retirement. Um, and then after a while, legislators thought, oh, well, this is kind of a handy way of raising money. We should we should assess fees for other things. So what we have now are places like New Jersey, where there is a fee imposed on every traffic ticket that pays for autism research and um, spinal cord injury research. Now, those are good things, and maybe New Jersey taxpayers want to pay for autism research, but you have to ask yourself, why do why is it only people who get traffic tickets who pay for autism research? In California, that fees fund 18 different programs, including the Fish and Game Preservation Fund. And again, what does that have to do with, um, you know, a charge for um, possession of opioids, right? I mean, nothing. So that's what happened. Um, And it's in, since 2010, 48 states have increased the number and amount of fines and fees that they impose through the justice system. And they've started to use the system as a piggy bank. Um, it happens both at the state level and it happens at local level. Cities do the same thing. They, they are, there are 600 cities in the United States that where at least 10% of their, of the city's budget comes from fines and fees. Wow. And again, if you think about it, it's like, Oh, to balance our budget, we need people to commit crimes. That's that's good public policy. I feel like there should be a long pause while we let that sit in for people. (laughs) Wait a second. Our our city can't balance the budget unless crime in our city increases. You got it. What kind of perverse incentives uh, we have going on here? That's wow, that is amazing. And then we have law enforcement out spending their time giving people tickets and um and and another particularly um uh invidious way that um people get stuck in the system fortunately in mississippi stopped two years ago and that was what we what 44 states continue to do right now is if you don't pay your fines and fees they suspend your driver's license um as a way of coercing you to pay back what you owe now most people think about that again for a nanosecond and you think wait a minute you want me, I owe you money, you want me to pay you money, and now you're taking away my driver's license, which, oh, by the way, is the way I get to work. Right. So, yeah. How am I going to do that? Um, Mississippi really led the country. Uh, and um, I, I know uh, sometimes Mississippi doesn't do that. <laughs> we aren't known for leading on reform. <laughs> but, but, and, and also, its partner in leading was California, and it's rare that we have Mississippi and California right, right. Um, adopting the same policy at the same time. But um, Mississippi stopped, and they stopped um, because the state recognized that this is really counterproductive policy. Um, again, if you're in Florida, when you um, pick up a traffic ticket, they will suspend your license um, if you don't pay right away. So will 44 other states. And, um, mm-hmm. and what happens then is that law enforcement, cops are stopping people for driving on a suspended license because, of course, your license is suspended. 
you drive anyway because you got to go to work. You got to right. get your kids to school. You yep. got to um, take a family member to the doctor. And then um, you get stopped. Driving on a suspended license is a misdemeanor everywhere. And now you have another criminal conviction. Um, and it all comes from being poor. And our law enforcement, instead of trying to solve serious crime, violent crime, the things we all worry about, are out there giving people traffic tickets and stopping them for driving on a suspended license because that raises revenue. And that's not a good use of our law enforcement resources. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. I was going to ask you about, you know, what do you say to people who say, well, you know, people should pay fines and fees. You know, they they broke the law. They got to do this. But I think anybody listening to this for the last uh, 30 minutes we've been talking um, there's just no way I think anyone in America who isn't who isn't benefiting from fees and fines can look at this and say this is helpful or this is getting me the you know more of what I want in my community or it's making us safer or it's actually helping people get back on their feet like at every turn it is incredibly counterproductive uh, for everyone who's involved not just the person getting the fees and fines but all the rest of us who want our communities to be thriving places where you know people are working and paying their taxes and, you know, everything else we want them doing. So who are your allies on this issue? Is this, do you see a lot of uh, bipartisan agreement? There is. This is actually um, a a place of hope for bipartisan consensus. Um, And really the left, right, and middle all working together to solve a problem. Um, Our allies range from um, Coke Industries and Americans for Prosperity, which is would describe itself as a conservative-leaning mm-hmm. organization, the Cato Institute, um, the Institute for Justice, which is a libertarian um, public interest um, uh, law firm, um, Right on Crime, which is exactly what it sounds like, right? <laughs> um, is prides itself on being conservative to our um, uh, uh, promoting common sense. Um, criminal justice policy reforms. Those are our allies on the, and ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a very conservative organization, mm-hmm. all with us on these issues, as well as partners on the left, the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, and um, many community-based organizations. And we have unusual allies. The business community has very strongly supported um, our efforts, because they, particularly on the issue of driver's license suspensions, they recognize how harmful this is um, to to their own bottom line and to economic prosperity in a community. If you're, if government is trying to suck all this money out of our lowest income communities, they'll those folks are never going to get a solid foot in the middle class and be able to be. Per, uh, tax paying and um, consumers and, and um, good customers. So the business community has supported these efforts. Um, the healthcare community has, sort of, has um, supported these efforts, recognizing that people, this impacts people's health, not just because of stress and time in jail, but because if they have to pay the fines and fees, they're sometimes forego medical care mm-hmm. or prescription drugs that they need. Um, to get healthy. So yeah. we have a really broad base of support. So what would you say, so I think we could probably most of us agree what we're doing now is incredibly counterproductive. 
Um, what would you say is the uh, the appropriate approach with right. fees and fines? Is there is there a place for it, or do do we really just need to shift to you know do community service hours and do you know things that don't um, separate people who are poor into a category of this is going to be a perpetual problem for them, whereas people who are you know middle class or higher they can just pay the fee and fine and move on with their life. Um, what is the place of fees and fines as you see it in, in if it's done well? So in our view, we should eliminate all fees in the system. As I've said at the outset, the government, the justice system serves all of us, right? It, it's, it, when we were kids in school, we all learned that, you know, that the United States government is a three-legged stool. There's the executive and the legislative and the judicial. And if that's the case, then all of us should pay for the justice system. It should be funded out of general revenue so that we have a system that's funded fairly and that isn't funded just by um, a small segment of the population. So we believe you should take fees out of the system altogether. Fines, by contrast, do, we believe, have a place in the system, um, but they should be imposed proportionate to the offense and to the individual. So we a $50,000 mandatory minimum fine for 11 Percocet is not a proportionate fine, mm-hmm. right? That makes no sense. It's way out of proportion to, to the offense. But it also needs to be, we need to look at individuals' economic circumstances. It, if we think about punishment, part of the reason that we impose a fine is to, it's to punish people, but it's also to deter people. And often, particularly at low-level offenses, you know, simple possession um, or traffic offenses or um, any of a number of offenses. The purpose is to deter people. We, we want right. to say, okay, don't do this again. So we charge you enough so that it hurts and you think about it twice before right. you do it again. But, but, we have, but it shouldn't be so much as to send you into bankruptcy or to, make, or to trap you in the system. Mm. So we need to look at every individual's economic circumstances and say, What's the right amount for you based on where you are? And it may be that um, that the fine for someone who's a minimum wage worker, and, and think about this, what it takes to deter me from committing a crime is probably more than it would take to deter a minimum wage right, worker, but right. a whole lot less than it would take to deter Bill Gates right. or Michael Bloomberg or somebody who's got billions of dollars. So if we think about individualizing the assessment of fines, that's the right approach. Hmm. Is there anything that you would say for people who say, wow, this is so terrible, but how could a regular person do anything about this? I better just leave it to the professionals. Uh, is there things that people can do in their own states to, to voice their support for reforming the way that we approach fees and fines? Absolutely. And in every state, there are organizations that are working on this issue um, and again, they range from Americans for Prosperity to the ACLU, and depending on who you're right, <laughs> find your find your place. Um, and we work in many states um, currently um, on reform. And so, um, I encourage people to go to our website, findsandfeesjusticecenter.org. Um, there are we have a contact us button, and if you're interested in doing work in your state, we will put you in touch um, with the organizations on the ground who are working on this issue. There are lots of reform bills and legislatures um, all over the country. People are really beginning to realize that this is not um, 
the way we should be funding government, and this is actually um, undermining our safety and security, and so people are trying to make change. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us as we wrap up? Um, just to say that um, uh, this, this, this issue impacts real people's lives, and um, I encourage people, at, at, if it hasn't happened to you directly, um, talk to a friend or neighbor, talk to a family member, ask if anybody's gotten um, a ticket or picked up for a charge like this and been in this situation. And you will hear um, stories of real hardship and, and ways in which the system is hurting people. Um, and when you, um, when you realize what we're doing, um, I hope people will um, go online and contact us or contact an organization in your state that you know is working on this issue. It's important for all of us um, to work together to solve this problem. Lisa Foster, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You can connect with Lisa's work at the Fees and Fines Justice Center.org, and you can connect with us on social media at End It For Good MS as we expand the conversation, rethinking a criminal approach to drugs and all of the different pieces that are part of what make um, our approach to drugs now such a destructive way to approach a public health issue, and part of that is the incredible financial burden that people are trying to dig their way um, uh, back out of when they come out of a criminal justice uh, involvement. And it doesn't have to be this way. It didn't used to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way now. And there are organizations like um, Lisa's that are addressing this issue and saying, if we want a prosperous country, if we want people working, providing for themselves, being able to live the American dream, we can't be crippling them with unnecessary fees and fines um, that keep them from something that helps all of us, which is a prosperous life. The more people that are prospering, the better it is for all of us. And we want to see that happen. And we hope you join us on uh, that journey to see that happen here in the U.S. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.